morning. If you, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, you can open it to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, your word is truth. It is our path. It is a light unto our path. It is the sword of the spirit. It is sharper than any two-edged blade. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We are taught in, the, in your word that as we grow in our understanding of you and your will for our life, that it will have an effect. As Christians, it will cause us to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that that is our desire, that we would grow in our knowledge of you <clears throat> and that it would have its effect of causing us to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, you are worthy of every second of our every day. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our obedience. You are worthy of our loyalty. You are worthy of our affections. And so, Lord, I pray that today it would be a great reminding to us that our hope is only in Jesus Christ. In the person and the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And stir us, I pray this morning, Lord, to love and good works. That we might be a people that honor you. Not only with our lips, but with our life. And so we thank you for this gathering, for this assembly. We thank you for the people who are here, who love you, and who are bought by your blood. Help us to love each other as you love us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So this morning we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, unless I drop dead up here, finish chapter 4. Um, and then move to chapter 5. And I must confess that the chapter 5, the first passage there, is one of my favorite passages uh, to pastor. And so I look forward to, to that passage next week, Lord willing. But this morning I want us to look at the concluding verses here in chapter 4 specifically 17 through 19, um, but 17 through 19 are connected to all the way back to verse 12. <clears throat> and so I, I think at first glance, uh, when we read these last three verses, let me, let me read them again. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? <clears throat> Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I think at first glance, uh, these three verses sound a little frightening. Um, they sound as if they disagree with the testimony of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Um, they sound a little frightful, I guess, but they only sound that way if we stay at the surface level. Um, at the surface of the passage. And if we keep the context of the letter away from these three verses, which is uh, a, a lot of times what happens, we, we, we take these, you know, we see these verses and we try to remove the context of the passage from them, which keeps us from a greater understanding of what um, the author is actually saying, what God is actually saying here um, in these verses. And so um, there's some questions that I, I think um, are good questions to ask about these three verses. Um, what does Peter mean by judgment, right? What, is, what does Peter mean by judgment? It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What does Peter mean by that? Um, will Christians face judgment, right? Will Christians face judgment? What is the purpose of the judgment of God in this passage? And, and why is God's judgment linked to the persecution of Christians? I think those are good questions for this passage, and, and hopefully, Lord willing, we'll, we'll answer these questions, and I pray answer them clearly. So I want to I address the first two questions um, that, that I've uh, put forth this morning. What does Peter mean by judgment, and will Christians face judgment? And the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture, right? Um, amen. And so I want us to look at what Christ says about judgment um, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and I want us to see <clears throat> what Peter means here by judgment and will Christians face judgment. <clears throat> In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will, I, Jesus, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this is another frightful uh, passage uh, on the surface. And, and to be honest, as we look at the list that these people are bringing forth to Christ, it's a pretty good list. Um, we prophesied in your name. We spoke in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty, mighty works in your name. 
So at least at the surface, the expressions um, were Christian. But as we, as we look deeper into this passage and we allow the rest of Scripture to, to inform us, we ask the question, what's the problem with these works? What is the problem with these works? The problem with these works, as we read in the passage, when he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What, what's the problem there is that what they're counting on is that their works were good enough to getting them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so it's not that works are bad. Here's what's bad. You trusting in your works to be what gains you entrance into heaven. The problem with these works is they are not connected to faith in Christ. They're connected to faith in self. And everything and anything disconnected from faith, we're told in God's word, is sin. Anything that's not of faith is of sin, the Apostle Paul says. So biblically, as we see in this passage, judgment carries with an evaluation. There's an evaluation here. These, these works are presented to Christ, and the evaluation causes these works to fail. And the reason why they fail is because they're not connected to faith. And anything outside of faith is sin. So judgment carries with it evaluation. Judgment carries with it evaluation. Matthew 24, 31 through 34, and verse 41 and verse 46. Forgive me for kind of picking around these, but it's a very long passage, and I want to get to the point. You can go back and read 31 through 46. But here Jesus is speaking of the judgment. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. <clears throat> Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go, Verse 46, away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here we see that judgment not only carries with it evaluation, but separation as well. Separation as well. So biblically, the judgment of God equals evaluation and separation based on the evaluation of believers from unbelievers. And an eternal verdict upon those judged. Will Christians face judgment? Yes. The Bible teaches us that. But we will have a different outcome than unbelievers. 
And when we say, if I don't think we will say this, I think that we'll just fall on our face and say, you know, if we're asked why should we should enter because of Christ. I'm not going to point to any of my works. Amen. I'm going to point to Christ's works. And I'm going to say anything I did was just based on a love for him. And I know everything that I did fails in comparison to what I should have done. But with biblical judgment, there's evaluation. And based on that evaluation, there's separation of believers and unbelievers. And we will face judgment, but we will have a different outcome. <clears throat> what is the, the third question here? What is the purpose of the judgment of God in this passage? He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we see there that there's two outcomes, right? It's implied there, at least, that there are two outcomes. There's going to be an outcome for the household of God, and there's going to be an outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God and who oppose God. What is the purpose of the judgment of God in this passage? I want to look at a, a, a passage in 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, that I think will be helpful. What is the purpose of the judgment of God in this passage? And Paul says in first, or 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10, if you, have, if you want to turn there, 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10, he says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Well, why? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Right? So the church in Thessalonica was enduring persecutions. They were suffering for the name of Christ. And they were enduring that suffering and enduring those afflictions <clears throat> and not straying from Christ not rejecting Christ, not recanting of their beliefs, but they were enduring the persecution. And Paul says there's a great purpose in this in 2 Thessalonians 1.5. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to replay, repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So Paul says here in, in 2 Thessalonians that us enduring the, the suffering that we, that we go through, the persecution and the afflictions that we go through because we bear the name of Christ shows that we love Christ more than we love the comforts of this world. And we love it so much that we will not release our grasp on the kingdom that is coming for this kingdom that's wasting away. <clears throat> and he says God will bring he will repay those who are afflicting you and he will bring relief <clears throat> there's relief coming he says when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints 
and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. What? What is that testimony? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Our testimony about Christ. Our testimony about God. We testified to you about Jesus Christ and his gospel and you believe that and you're willing to suffer for it. <clears throat> and there will be a great day of vindication. So what Paul is saying, Peter is also saying, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There will be different outcomes. There, there will be an outcome for the household of God, which Peter has already stated in this epistle that we are. And there will be an outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And those outcomes are based on judgment, which means evaluation. And anytime you have evaluation, you have separation. So what we see being said here is that the trials that come into our life for being Christians... The suffering that we face and endure because we name ourselves with Christ and we pledge our allegiance to Christ, it is a refining process. It's a refining process. And if, if you've been a Christian very long, you understand the biblical language that's used in different passages about the, re, the work that refining does. Remember what Peter said uh, just a few verses Ahead, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Trials are meant to test and refine us as Christians. But, but we also see here that this testing is not only a refining process for the household of God, it is a refining process for those who dis disobey the gospel of God. Refining has, can have two outcomes. And I believe we see that here, that as Christians, we're not the only ones being refined in, in suffering and in persecution. And I'll, so I want to look at the fourth question. Why is God's judgment linked to the persecution of Christians? Well, we know that God has often used outsiders and, and unbelievers for the process of refining his people. And so I want us to think about the process and outcome of refining. The process and outcome of refining. The process of refining is using intense heat. Intense heat and pressure to drive out the impurities from the object being refined. It's what refining is for. Intense heat and pressure to drive out the impurities from the object being refined. And so the goal and outcome of refining is to find out the reality, to find out the reality of the object being refined. Right? What is the reality of this object? And so we ref we, the process of refining is to find out the reality of the object of your refining. Is it real or is it not? Is this really what it says it is? Or what it has been said to be? Is your faith real? 
Well, let's use the refining process to find out whether or not your faith is real. If it is real, then you would also want the object purified. When gold is refined, it is to remove the impurities so that you have nothing left but gold. Another goal would be the purity of the object being refined, as I said. So God allowing trials to come upon the church is for the refining and the purifying of the church. I hope that we understand that God is about the business of purifying his church. Christ is about the business of purifying his bride. He will not let us uh, linger in sin. He'll come and snatch us out. He'll send loved ones, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to come to seek to snatch us out. God is in the business of the purity of his bride. And so God allows trials to come upon the church for refining us and purifying the church. And so does he really? I want to read Matthew 13, 18 through 23. You'll remember this passage of the parable of the sower. And I want to just read the part that explains the parable and make a couple of points here. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. <clears throat> As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the de deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He or she indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So here Jesus is using, uh, an agricult uh, using agriculture to teach a truth that is real, a real truth that not only did they see this in, in the, the, the entire history of, of mankind and the history of Israel, but we see it today in, in the church. If you've been a Christian very long, you've seen this. We see some people, the first soil, um, are people that never received the gospel at all. Maybe you've spoken the gospel to them. Maybe they've heard the gospel preached and there's never been one inkling of an expression that they believe it, not even one word. They reject the gospel from the very beginning. The gospel never um, really affects the intellect, um, which is the starting point of conversion. Conversion has to start with an understanding uh, of the intellect. You have to understand the truth of the gospel intellectually before you'll ever understand it in the heart. For you to ever love the gospel, you have to understand the gospel or else you're loving something that's not the gospel. And so this first soil is, is a person that never even receives the gospel intellectually. They never are moved intellectually by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, the third soil, we, we see some people, they're affected intellectually, but they never let it pass the intellect because they count the cost and determine it's not worth it to them. I, I've met lots of people like this that want to talk 
about religion, but it never changes them. It never moves them to change their behavior, change their lifestyle, but they just want to talk about religion. It sounds good to them, but it's not gripped them. We see some people, the second soil, they receive the gospel. They respond with external zeal and expressions that seem real at first. They get, maybe they get plugged into the church. They become active in ministry. They may even evangelize people. But when trials and suffering for the name of Christ enter their life, they turn from Christ and leave him. They no longer think Christ is worth it. And then we see the fourth soil. This is the one who receives the gospel with joy and endures to the end. Their faith is in Christ and they find him worthy to suffer for. God is the one who allows all of these things to come into the life of all these different soils here in the parable. And he does so for a purifying effect of the church. He does it so those who actually have real faith can have assurance of their real faith. And those who don't have real faith can lose assurance of real faith because there's nothing worse than someone believing they're saved while they're on their way to hell. It's not the job of the church to comfort those who really don't have faith. They need to be evangelized. What a sad story if we coddle someone to the pit of hell. I pray that I don't do that. And if, if this, this soil here that's received it with joy and then turns from the church and goes away, I hope that the church goes after them and says, listen, please come back. There's, there's no way that you can have assurance right now. Please don't think that you can have assurance when you've turned from Christ and not living from Christ. Please don't think that. It's unbiblical. And I don't want you to end up at judgment listing works that you did 20 years ago and no faith. Lord, give us a burden for those who think they're saved and they're not. And may, may we reach out to them in grace and love and compassion. But with a greater concern for their eternal destiny. God ordains these things for a refining purpose and for an assurance or a lack of assurance purpose because he's merciful and he's gracious and he wants all to repent. And turn from their sin and turn to him. But he also allows these things to come upon his people because he wants to purify us. And the, the more he purifies us, the more we reflect his image. The more we reflect the image of Christ, our Savior, who was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. He wants to, God is in the business of alleviating his church from hypocrisy. He doesn't like his church to be full of hypocrisy. 
He wants to enable the church to have a good and faithful testimony to the world. And so God cares deeply and acts faithfully upon the church for its purity. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 through 19. He says this, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. What? Divisions in the church? A group of sinful people? How can there be divisions? And then Paul says this, a remarkable statement. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you. And then he tells the purpose why God allows factions in a church. In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Imagine that. God allowing divisions and disunity within a church in order that the genuine believers may rise to the occasion and show that they actually believe in Jesus Christ. So God does this for a refining effect on the church. And I believe a refining effect on those who find out they're not genuine. Because God cares deeply and acts faithfully upon the church for its purity. There is a process of refining, and the process of refining is to remove the impurities. The impurities individually, because I'm a sinful man. The, the, the impurities corporately, because we're a group of sinful people that can get caught up in sinful ways if God's not refining us. And that's the outcome of refining. The process is pressure, trials, right? Suffering, um, intense heat, pressure to, to show our character, to prove what's really there. Is there gold there or is this fool's gold? Is there faith there in Christ or is there a faith in self? Is there a faith in the works of Christ or is there a faith in the works that we do? Is there a faith in the person of Christ or is there faith in the person of me? And the outcome will be that one way or another, God will show evidence in your life, whether you choose to receive or ignore, God will prove evidence in your life whether or not you have true faith or not in Jesus. And that's the outcome of refining. Praise God that he doesn't just have the process, right? That there's an outcome that's good and meant for benefit and meant for blessing. That's what Peter said, blessed are you, right, who endure suffering. Blessed are you because God has brought a means in your life for you to be assured that you're one of his. And that when you die and take your last breath, your next moment will be in the presence of Christ, your Savior. And so not only is there the refining process and the outcome of refining, but there's the persuasion of refining. Refining should have a persuasion on us. It should persuade us. 
Philippians 1, 27 and 28 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Listen to this. That's what he says here. Number one, the church is to be unified and marching together in unity, right? God doesn't want division in the church, but he'll allow it if it means down the road it will bring unity. And then he says, don't be frightened in any way or in anything by your opponents. And then he says this, this, this astounding statement here in verse 28 of Philippians 1. This is a clear sign. Listen, them persecuting you, okay, the, them persecuting you and your response to persecution is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You see that? You hear that? So when we're persecuted, what, what it's doing is it's not only refining us, but it's refining them because it is a clear sign to them. They may not admit it. But with it, what's going on within, within them when they persecute us is that it is an expression within their heart and in their soul and in their mind that they are doomed. And that we're not. And it is a sign to us that they're not saved and that we are. And it's a sign to them that they're not saved and we are. You see that? That, that double refining outcome or persuasion, if you will. So what God teaches us is that as we endure suffering for Christ, as we cling to Christ, and, and our response to suffering is in obedience to Christ, we give off this aroma to unbelievers that we are saved and they are not. And I'll say it again and I'll say it till I die that there's nothing greater to know if you're not saved than that you're not saved. And there's nothing sadder than to be duped to the grave that you're saved when you're not. And God in his mercy will bring things in our life, refining processes in our life that will give testimony and evidence to one or the other. And, and we pray, I hope, I hope I can pray this, as, as, as if someone's persecuting me, I pray that I, that I can hope this and pray this, that, that they're persecuting of me and this aroma that's being given off and, and that's assuring me of my salvation and assuring them that they have none, I pray that it will have the effect of conversion on their soul. And part of that, God has ordained to take be our testimony or the way we endure suffering is a means to that end. God doesn't just zap us with salvation. God uses means. And part of the means that he's chosen to use is people. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, obviously. Amen? Amen. But God uses us and how we live and what we speak to influence others to turn to him. Through the gospel. 
And it may, it may well be that the very thing that God uses to be the straw that breaks the camel's back is you enduring suffering with joy for the name of Christ at their hands. It's heaping coal on their head, as the Bible would describe it. And if, if you've heard of the testimony of many Christians who've suffered great persecution, that, that those things took place in their life as they endured suffering. Read Richard Vermbrand, the Romanian pastor who suffered years and years in prison, and the people that tortured him turning to Christ because of the way he endured it. And because of him sharing the gospel with them any chance he could. So not only does our enduring suffering for Christ assure us of our salvation, but those who persecute Christians are given a convincing effect of their doom. Of their destruction. And so we should pray that the end result is the salvation of their souls. And let me tell you something, what an unnatural thing to do. What an unnatural thing to do. Because we know what the natural response to someone persecuting us is. And it's not praying for them. When Peter says in 1 Peter 4.18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's actually quoting Proverbs 11.31, which speaks of being repaid in this life. And Peter is using Proverbs 11.31 here to say, if the righteous are saved, yet have difficulties in this life, what will be the end of those who oppose God and his salvation? That's what Peter's saying here. Because that word scarcely actually means with difficulty. That's what it means. If the righteous are saved with difficulty, what will be the end of those who Oh, disobey God and persecute his people. If the righteous, those who God loves and cherishes and keeps within his hand so no one can snatch them out, if those righteous people, because of Christ, if they have difficulties in this life but are rewarded with salvation, what will it look for those who oppose God? And the answer is this. It will look worse. Because if the righteous have difficulties in this life, but are rewarded with salvation, those who don't believe in God and oppose the gospel of God and oppose God, they'll have difficulties in this life without salvation. Which means this. This right now is their best life. What a frightful thought. This is as good as it gets. With all the things that, that all of humanity has to endure because of the fall and the consequences of the fall, to know that this life is the best it gets. With cancer and death and tragedy, and sorrows, and tears, and pain, knowing that all of that is the best it's going to get for you. 
But we who are righteous, we suffer those things just as the world does. But we have a glorious end awaiting us, a glorious inheritance waiting for us. And so I think, and I think I want to close with verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's here's what I think. When I'm refined, right, when I'm thinking about the process of God refining me and removing the impurities, you know what's left? Christ. What's what's good in me? What's, What's good about me? Christ. When all the impurities are removed, it's going to be Christ. When I stand before God, it's not going to be me standing for myself. It's going to be me bowing out and Christ standing in my place. And so the refining process removes all hope in self, all hope in works, and it causes me to rejoice in the perfect work and finished work and person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when I come to that point, I can again Praise the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, that I can entrust my soul to a faithful creator. That I don't have to entrust my soul to me. I don't have to entrust my soul to anyone else. I entrust my soul to a faithful creator who has promised that if I'm united to Christ, I'm good. That I'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And so I don't have to worry about the sorrows that come into my life. I don't have to worry about the troubles that come into my life because there's someone that's taking care of me and watching over me and has put me in his hand and no one can snatch me out and it's my faithful creator. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that though difficulties come in our life and life is full of them because of sin, that you are working intimately in each of our lives to show us that you want us to be pure. Show us, you show us how to be pure. You show us the pure one, Jesus. All of this through the process and the outcome and the persuasion of the refining process that you ordain into our lives. And as Christians, we come through that refining process and we're reminded once again gloriously that our hope is not in our position at the church or in the church or what we do for the church, or what we do at home, or what we do for our neighbors, or what we do at school. Our hope is not in any of those things, no matter how great they may look to human eyes. Our hope is in the finished work and person of Jesus Christ. And so we can, with joy, entrust our souls to you and nothing else and no one else. And we give you the glory, and we give you the praise And we know and understand that because of this, we are a blessed people. We pray that we would love you in greater ways and that we would seek you in greater ways and that we would love one another 
your bride, your people in greater ways. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.